James 1, and we'll be reading verse uh, 12 and 13. We could read farther in this passage, but I believe that Andrew is going to be dealing more with uh, some of the later aspects of this. So I want us to really focus on 12 and 13. Now, James 1, 12 and 13. Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he has been approved... He will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. Interesting question. When you look at this passage, it may not be a question that we typically think of is, why can't God be tempted? And I know there's an obvious answer to this because he's God, right? It's impossible for him to be tempted. It's impossible for him to tempt others. It's a simple answer. But maybe sometimes looking at simple answers and digging deeper can help yield some good things. And so today I'd like to talk about just some very brief things. Kind of This question kind of drew me to think about the greater nature of God that is expounded upon in the book of James. How is God portrayed by James? I think that's a good question for us to consider. So that's the first thing I want to look at. Secondly, I want to deal with this question of tempting, temptation, trials. What does that really mean? What are we talking about there? And try to pull out precisely what is being said when he says, God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. We want to get a proper perspective on that. Because we have a God, and, and, and we, we have a God that shows us that He is there for us, that He wants to provide for us, that He wants to take care of us. And if we get to a point where we feel like God is sort of testing us in a sense of waiting for us to fail, we don't see God as clearly as we ought to, if that's our image of who God is. And finally, we want to just sort of make some applications and consider what this all ultimately means altogether. So first of all, I want to talk about our uh, faithful, unfailing God. Our God who's there for us. Our God who doesn't stop being there for us. Our God that helps us in every way. In various places throughout uh, James, the book of James, we see these things about God. Back in verse 5, where it says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. Another translation I looked at, I think it was the Lexham English Bible, said he gives without reservation this wisdom. There's no holding back on the wisdom that God wants us to have. And it's this wisdom, this full and complete wisdom that the world, of course, does not cherish. The world doesn't care about this wisdom, but we can cherish that wisdom. We can seek after it, and God gives it liberally and openly without any reservation whatsoever. How awesome is that? He gives us every good gift. Verse 17 of chapter 1, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. The gifts, of course, that we see many squander and throw to the side, the gift of fellowship among saints today, right? That's part of this. 
the, the gift of salvation, the most obvious one. But all these good gifts that we see, everything that's good comes from Him. And so we need to cherish that. We need to appreciate that and understand that these gifts are not given one day and then they're taken away the next. He always has these things to share with us. He birthed us, verse 18. Of His own will He brought us forth by the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of His creatures. He gave us a new identity in His salvation and a citizenship in His kingdom. How, how incredible this is to consider that as unimportant and, and lousy as I am, that God has brought me up from the muck and the mire and set me in the heavenly places with His Son, Jesus. That is a wonderful thought. Chapter 2 and verse 5 tells us that He chose the poor of the world to be rich in faith. He says, listen, my beloved brethren, has not God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which He promised to those who loved Him? Contrast this thought, of course, with the thought process of most of the world even today. The thought that, well, if you're faithful to God, God is going to bless you with all this material wealth. He's going to make you successful. And we can see that that is a lie. That we recognize that even the poor of the world are chosen to be rich in faith in the sense that if I want to be rich in faith, I have to forego all of this material existence. And I'm afraid that's, that grabs us no matter what. We have to be very careful about that. And then a statement in chapter 4 and verse 6. And in this context, I want us to keep in mind what's being said. He's talking about the conflicts that they have. And in verse 4, he talks about if someone is a friend of the world, that makes himself an enemy of God. And he says, Do this, does the scripture say in vain, verse 5, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealousy? But he says in verse 6, but he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. The Lexham Bible says he gives greater grace. And some of your translations might even say that. And I think that's a more accurate concept to what is actually being said here because we recognize that there was grace that was given. There was a limited grace that was given under the law of Moses. But now we have greater grace. And, and, and a, a grace that is greater than anything that has come before and anything that will happen afterwards. And so look at all these things. You know, and, and, and there may be more that I haven't seen in the book of James, it tells us about more than about the nature of God, but just the picture that we have of God in James is just this, this God that He's always there for us, and He always provides all these good things for us. And He's always, he's always ready to, to sacrificially help us and to place us in these great places. And as we think about this, I think this will help us kind of consider these things in the right mindset, that our God is faithful, He's unfailing, He's not going to stop. Well, let's talk about this question of what, what does this mean? Temptation, testing, trials, what are we talking about? Because when we look back at James chapter 1, you've got a few different words there. Um, you've got in verse 2, you've got various trials. In verse 12, you have the man who endures temptation, being tempted by God. All of these uh, words are rendered in different ways, but it's the same Greek word. And I won't try to pronounce it. 
But both renderings in the New Testament in this uh, chapter are based on the same word. And so we recognize that this idea of temptation and testing is really kind of the same thing. And this can present some problems. Because we might think we're being tested by a certain situation, but then we're tempted by sin. And sometimes we tend to file those in different areas. But I would, I would suggest that maybe we think about it as all the same thing, but with maybe at least four ways of that being shown. And I want to just briefly go over these things. Um, first of all, you might have a test that is allowed, and I say allowed by God, because uh, I think it's a sense where God himself doesn't bring up these tests necessarily, but he allows these things to happen. And with what hope, with what focus? And I think that's the difference is the, the focus of these things. And it depends on the giving or receiving of it as well. But you could have a test that's allowed with the hope of success for the person tested. I think an example there is 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 12, where Paul says, Therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. God's going to use these temptations, these trials, to help us maybe come to a better understanding of where we really are in growth. He goes on in that, verse 13, No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man, but God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but with the temptation will also make a way of escape, that you may be able to bear it. We can take great comfort in that. But I think it's important that we remember that that passage does not talk about how hard or how easy that temptation or trial is going to be for us. The only thing he promises for us is that we're going to be able to bear it. Whatever it is, we're going to be able to bear it. And we need to, we need to think about that and really believe in that. And to know that he's going to make sure that we have this way of escape. You know, we don't get to decide how easy these things are, right? How easy we think they are. And sometimes we may think there's no way I can see out of this. But God has given us these trials for a particular purpose, and we need to listen to that. Galatians 6 and verse 1, Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering, considering excuse me, yourself, lest you also be tempted. Uh, you Think about that. Isn't that a great work, to, to try to work on restoring a brother who's fallen away? But you're taking a risk there, aren't you? You're taking a risk that you're going to be tempted maybe to do the same thing, maybe to act in the wrong way and to say the wrong things and do the wrong things while you're trying to do that, that right thing, right? We can do wrong while we're trying to do right. But God doesn't give us that, that work to trick us into sin, right? And that's what we need to go back to. God allows tests like this. But you might also have a test that's given with the hope of destroying the person tested. There are a lot of passages we could look at for this, but one I pulled out was John 8 and verse 6, uh, talking about Jesus. This they said, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. And so even in that place, and if you remember that, that passage of the woman who was to be stoned, and Jesus says, the first one of you who is without sin cast the first stone. But their whole questioning, and you can see multiple times where the Pharisees and scribes did this. They're not questioning him. They're not testing him or trying him with the hope that he'll pass that test and he'll be approved. They're hoping to pull him down. This is a very different way of giving that test and a different motivation. 
And so we go back to James 1, nor does he himself tempt anyone. And the implication is, when we go back to verse 13, is God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone to evil. And I would add to that in the sense that in the same context, that's what we're talking about. And so when it says that God cannot be tempted, or does he himself tempt anyone, I'm not sure that that is absolutely 100% on its own. I think the context is that he can't be tempted by evil, and he can't tempt someone toward evil. Let's, let's keep looking through this, and maybe we can talk more about it in the next hour as well. Uh, that You could have a test that uh, I think not just the way that it's given or allowed, I think it's about how we receive these tests that, that become so important. When we look into uh, passages like Mark 1 and verse 13, And he was there in the wilderness forty days, tempted by Satan, and was with the wild beasts, and the angels ministered to him. Was that test? Was that uh, a trial? How was that received by Jesus? I think it was received fairly positively. You know, he, he worked through it. I don't think he had fun doing it. But he worked through it. And, of course, the angels ministered to him and helped him. Uh, very similar statement if we're, if we're still in James 1, verse 2. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. And then later on in verse 12, blessed is the man who endures temptation. We've already read that verse. But you know, God allows tests like this, and God is hoping that we react in a positive way in this, in this situation. And if we react in the right way, that can lead towards growth. That can lead to a place where we're, we're uh, uh, actually being benefited by these trials. But of course, we know that we can turn it the other way around, can't we? Uh, we can take in negative ways toward failure or destruction. Think about Cain in Genesis 4. Uh, God didn't respect Cain and his offering, Genesis 4, 5. And Cain was very angry and his countenance fell. So the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door. And its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. See, Cain was being tested at that time. And God was allowing that testing, but Cain did not react with a pure and honest heart toward that testing. See, a pure and honest heart is going to take that testing and look at it in a healthy way and take it in that sense that I know that I can do better. I know that I can overcome this with God's help through God's grace. Luke 22 and verse 40 says, When he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you do not enter into temptation. He says again in verse 46, Then he said to them, Why do you sleep? Rise and pray lest you enter into temptation. Remember, Jesus is in the garden. And he keeps coming back and the apostles are asleep. And we recognize they are failing in the way of that temptation. And maybe they weren't really receiving that uh, temptation or trial in the right way. And, and we know ultimately that they failed when they fled when Jesus was arrested, right? So we can appreciate that. Uh, these different trials, right? These different trials, these different temptations... Depends on who's give, you know, what the way it's being given, and also depends on the way it's being received. But I think it's all the same concept. It's the same basic idea. This is a test. This is a trial. This is a temptation. Well, let's discuss too how we should not tempt God, and what that really truly means. Where do we see God being tempted? 
Well, a few passages we might go over, and the most obvious is when uh, the children of Israel were in the wilderness. In Exodus 17, in verse 7, So he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the contention of the children of Israel, and because they tempted the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Deuteronomy 6, verse 16, referencing back to that, You shall not tempt the Lord your God as you tempted him in Massa. In Psalm 78, verse 40, How often they provoked him in the wilderness and grieved him in the desert. Yes, again and again they tempted God and limited the Holy One of Israel. They did not remember his power. The day when he redeemed them from the enemy, when he worked his signs in Egypt and his wonders in the fields of Zoan. And we could read through that psalm and really get an idea of what the Israelites were doing at that time. That was a sense where they they themselves were tempting and testing God, not toward, uh, God wasn't going to do this toward evil, to do them wrong, but they were tempting him in a sense of casting him off and casting him away. That's really what we're talking about here. And so that's where we see God being tempted. We may ask the question, do we ever see Christ being tempted? Well, obviously we do. We've gone over the points where he himself has what was tempted while here on earth. And that's exactly what happened. But a statement in 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 9 is here. And, and Paul says, Nor let us tempt Christ, as some of them also tempted, and were destroyed by serpents. Don't tempt Christ. This term actually is a little bit different. Uh, the, the term is really a more emphatic form of the, the, the word that we saw earlier. And it it means to test thoroughly in a sense that I'm going to push Christ to the limit. I'm going to do whatever I want, basically. And I I think there is an aspect where when our brethren talk about, uh, you know, what I would call cheap grace, that, that maybe we can direct their minds to this verse and say, do I really want to tempt Christ? Do I really want to act like he, he's not going to care about this? It occurs at least three other times, well, three other times, uh, period, where uh, Jesus tells Satan in Matthew 4, Luke 4, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. That, that, that emphatic aspect of you shall not tempt the Lord your God. Luke 10, 25, it says a certain lawyer stood up and tested him saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And I know it's hard for us, I think, to get this meaning in the English sometimes, but, but it seems to be a more emphatic aspect. But these expose the meaning of this term. It's not the same testing for evidence, right? And I think there's something to be said there, too. Uh, and we'll talk a minute about how God invites honest uh, criticism. Basically, God invites honest questioning. But uh, this is not honest questioning. This is a testing that's meant to tear down the person that you're asking. You know, the Israelites were trying to tear down God. And even in that psalm, it says they limited the Holy One of Israel. That's an interesting thing to say about that. Because it's like, well, how can you limit God? Well, the only way you can limit God is to say, look, God, I don't want you in my life. When the people of the Gadarenes told Jesus to leave, he left. Mark 5. When, God, when you don't want God in your life, He's going to leave. He's not going to stick around. He's not going to force Himself into your life. And so we need to seriously think about this. I don't need to tempt God. 
I don't need to be in such a way where I'm pushing him to the side and pushing him away. So what does it really mean? If we assemble all this together, what does it mean for God to be tempted? Well, we recognize that Christ was tempted in human form. We recognize that God was tempted by the Israelites. But I I love this statement in Malachi 3 and verse 10. You might turn there. Because there's a whole criticism here that God has for his people. That they are not being rich toward God. They're being rich toward each other and themselves. And it seems like Israel is in a state of some kind of wealth here at this point. But in Malachi 3 and verse 10, look at what this this says here. Look at what God says. He says, Bring all the tithes into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and try me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such blessing that there will not be room enough to receive it. This is fascinating to me because here's God saying, You test me. You try me. And, but, but again, I think God is not saying, test me in a sense of pushing me away and disposing of me. He's saying, you test me by embracing my will. That's, that's interesting to me. And it goes right along with the fact that Jesus invites honest investigation. Look at John chapter 1. There are plenty of people, I think, in this world that are taught all through their life, don't ever question God. Don't ever question what He says. He's God. And I think there's something that's valuable about that. We need to be careful that we don't go beyond our bounds and and, and think that, well, I know more than God. But look at what is said in John 1 and verse 45. Um, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law And also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered and said to him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered and said to him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus answered and said to him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, Hereafter you shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. I don't know of any passage that I can find where Nathaniel, in the other Gospels I think uh, it's said that he's the same guy as Bartholomew. I can't find a reference where Nathaniel saw this. And, you know, maybe I'm missing something. If y'all want to help me out with that, please do so. Um, but I think there's a reason why Jesus says these things to him. Nathaniel is not rebuked by the Lord. He's not said, well, hey, I'm, I'm the son of, of man. I'm the son of God. I mean, who are you to say that nothing good can come out of Nazareth? But look, at, I mean, that statement in verse 47 you know, what if, what if Jesus said that about you? It'd make me feel pretty good. Here's a guy that doesn't want to be lied to. Here's a guy that wants the truth. That's, you know, that's great. But he talks about this because I think when you go back to examples like Genesis 28, how did Jacob wrestle with God? We know that this literally happens later, but way back when the 
relationship between Jacob and, and, and God really happens, really begins, Jacob makes a vow in Genesis 28 and verse 20. He says, If God will be with me and keep me in this way that I am going, and give me bread to eat and clothing to put on, so that I come back to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. I, I wouldn't go so far as to say that there's something wrong with what Jacob does. I wouldn't do what he did. I don't want to say to God, well, listen, if you put clothes on my back and keep, my, you know, keep the, the income going and I can provide for my family, then you'll be my God. I wouldn't want to take that risk of saying that. But at the same time, we can appreciate that that's, this is exactly what God did. God provided for Jacob. He provided for his family. Even today, when we were studying through, the, the terror of God was upon the peoples that were in Canaan. And it insulated Jacob's family from harm. I think that comparison between Nathaniel and Jacob is so clear that, that we need to take something from that. That when we face times of extreme questioning, we make sure we're questioning in the right way that we have the right love for each other in that way. Uh, another passage that I actually don't have on the PowerPoint, John 20, Thomas isn't rebuked either, by the way. Thomas is saying, I I'm not going to believe unless I see the handprint of the nails, and unless I see him in bodily form, I'm not going to believe. Jesus gives him the evidence that he needs. And so that's a good thing that we can appreciate, that, that God is not going to tell us, how dare you ask me this question? How dare you question me? God's open and honest. If we're questioning in the right mindset, he's going to look at us in those ways. But I, I do want to say this before we finish up the lesson. God does not approve or accept those who question the truth and only consult other sources. If I have questions and I go to the wisdom of the world and I try to figure out these things about God by listening to the world, how does God look at me? I think he look, looks at me very similar in the ways that he looked at his people. Back in Isaiah 30, turn there please. Isaiah 30, and the way that this is phrased is just so interesting because God is saying, you make this known. You make sure people will know this forever. In uh, Isaiah 30 and verse 8, Now go write it before them on a tablet and note it on a scroll, that it may be for time to come, forever and ever, that this is a rebellious people, lying children, children who will not hear the law of the Lord, who say to the seers, Do not see, and to the prophets, Do not prophesy to us right things. Speak to us smooth things. Prophesy deceits. Get out of the way. Turn aside from the path. Cause the Holy One of Israel to cease from before us. And I think that exposes the wrong way of questioning God. When I'm questioning God to push Him away, I am tempting Him away from me. I am testing Him in such a way that I do not want Him in my life. And God's not going to look at me favorably in that way. We need to be so careful that we don't get to that point. I think we can be deceived into this concept because we see Israelites being deceived. Nehemiah 9.26, Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you. Cast your law behind their backs and killed your prophets who testified against them to turn them to yourself. And they worked great provocations. That provocation provoking the Lord, tempting the Lord in these ways, I think that's what we're talking about. 
Jeremiah 2.30 In vain I have chastened your children. They received no correction. Your sword has devoured your prophets like a destroying lion. Lamentation 2.14 Your prophets have seen for you false and deceptive visions. They have not uncovered your iniquity to bring back your captives, but have envisioned for you false prophecies and delusions. It's so easy to believe a lie. And as we think about these things, as we consider the truths of God, we need to be thankful that we have a God that helps us to see through these lies and to understand these things. So really, just to sort of sum up, we're talking about God being tempted, but not in such a way where he could fail and falter and do the wrong thing. We're talking about God being tempted as of our fault and our failure to want to be a part of what he's doing, to want to be a part of his kingdom. And if we have that mindset of being a part of his kingdom, guess what? We have the freedom to ask these questions and to say, you know, why, why is it that this is this way? And we can consult his scripture and we can learn more about him. And so he's given us all these great and wonderful gifts. He's faithful. He's unable to be tempted or provide temptation toward evil. And again, that's what I would focus on back in James 1. And then when we question God, we need to carefully go to the source and we need to refuse to tempt God. When we face these temptations, brothers and sisters, we need to remember the place that God has put us in and the love He's shown us so clearly. So today, I want to encourage you to think about your life. Because here's the thing. I can be deceived. You can be deceived. We can all be deceived to the wrong way. We can always come back. The, the scriptures tell us that there is sin that doesn't lead to death in the sense that there's this sin that we have, this stumbling, and we can always repent. As long as we have this life, we can change. And so this morning, if that's where you are, we encourage you to do that, to think about the words of Jesus and think about you know, what's been your life experience so far. Have you been saved by the blood of Christ? We invite you to respond to the gospel call while we stand and sing.